Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome back to Word of Your Ear. They like to say uh, nowadays that popular music moves really fast. They're talking balls. Because <laughs> if you want to know when popular music moved really fast, you have to consult our next guest, who spent a brief but very important period of time in one of those groups that became notorious, legendary, resounding through the decades, to the extent that, in the words of the Eagles, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Glenn Matlock. Good evening. I I must must admit, I've never been compared in any way at all with the Eagles. Well, <laughs> it wasn't a comparison. It wasn't a comparison. Years. And, you know, anyway, whatever. And Spoken of. <laughs> but on the other hand, I did Appeared do a gig. the same sentence. I did do a gig last summer at Slim Jim Phantom's um, wedding reception. It was an excuse to get more people in at the, the Whiskey A Go-Go in Los Angeles. And... Gilby Clark was supposed to be playing with me, but he was having a drink, missed the call, and I ended up playing with Skunk Baxter on stage. He was really quite good. Actually. You played with a member of Steely Dan yeah. and the Doobie Brothers. Yeah. And he was Okay. He was complaining about good. the Eagles. So I think we're among friends now. Which, one all was the score. Absolutely. Uh, so, Glenn, give us an idea of the concept of the book, Triggers... A life in music. Yeah, well, a particular idea. I'd here. written a book many, many years ago, maybe before people were doing books. Books. <laughs> for people of our ilk, right? Okay. And we was talking in the green room downstairs with Pauline, and now it's a popular thing. And I thought, I can't do the same book again. And somebody suggested, but why don't you do a book based around, like, lyrics you've written some songs that have affected you, you know, some that were instrumental to your growing up and becoming a musician. So that's what I did, really. right. You know, right. and there's a whole bunch of stories behind each chapter. So each, each chapter is a book, is a song title. So the first chapter very much deals with, what's the 1950s? You're born in the 1950s. 56. Yeah. 56. So how much of a 1950s childhood was that? I should think it was a bog-standard kind of typical one, really, um, for people of my age. I did like that song by the police, Born in the Fifties. Right. Right. Um, not quite as old as Sting, but not by not much. But it, 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 we did, I did some shows with him earlier in the year. It was kind of good with Blondie. I like him. He's a class act. Um, yeah, working-class family. Tim Bath, paraffin eater and everything. We had a radiogram. My uncle was only about 10 years older than me, my mum's younger brother, Colin Davies, and he gave me his old 78s because he'd sort of moved on and then became 
Like a dead ringer for um, Anthony Newley and Gurney Slade, you know, with a white Mac and all that. In fact, I remember him coming back. He worked in Soho and he came back up the street one day with a packet of spaghetti under his arm. Blue packet with a label on it. And all the ladies were on the street waiting for the husbands to come home from work because it was that kind of thing. And they were aghast because spaghetti only came in tin. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was a real opening moment. Right? But my uncle gave me his old records and the first records I actually physically put on myself were like Hound Dog, um, a whole lot of shaking going on. 78? 78, she put them on the radiogram. It was like lighting a, you know, when you got a firework and it says light blue touch paper and retire immediately. Retreat. You go and stand over the other side of the room in case it's spun off. And, and if, you, if you drop them, they shattered. They shattered, shattered, yeah. Yeah, you had to go yeah. buy another one. Yeah. But that kind of comes into a bit later on in my musical kind of um, genesis or whatever you want to call it. But all those records came in heavy cardboard sleeves stitched together down the side with a little hole in the middle so you could see the label. Yeah. We'll get onto that, maybe. Right. But you were, you were uh, like many kids growing up in the 50s, you were very taken with radio comedy. Yeah, I mean, that may, I mean, so 56, 1960, I was four, 61, 62, you have the radio on all the time, um, Sunday dinner around your nans, and as we can see, around the horn was one of the right. things that was on, which was... Even back then, I thought it was really risque. You know, that <laughs> two-character segment in it with um, uh, Julian and Sandy, which was Hugh Paddock and Kenneth Williams. You know, and they're speaking in, like, Polari, which was, like, a gay... Sl- it was outrageous, really. If you listen to it now, you think, wow. It was know, family that- entertainment in those days. Yeah, and everybody would laugh. But, and you'd catch on to why people were laughing. But you thought... <laughs> This ain't quite right somehow. Or if it is, there's a story behind the story, which I found out kind of later on. And then there was other shows, Saturday morning. There was the Brian Matthews show, who would play clips from radio shows, Hancock's Half Hour and Round That Horn, interspersed, you know, with the Beatles, or maybe a bit later on, the Dave Clark Five, or Paul Anker, or... um, Ellen Shapiro was always on Walking Back to Happiness. I hope she found it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But the, the first group you kind of latch on to is the Kinks. Is that right? Yeah, I think kind of properly. It, was, it wasn't the first record I actually went and bought with my own pocket money. What was that? That was kind of a toss-up between You Really Got Me and the Twist and Shout EP, both of which I've still got from one of those shops up in Olsden that where your mum and dad would go and pay for the TV rental. Yes. And they used to have little pegboard kind of compartments up on the wall and they had the top 20 of us, top 30. But in the back of my mind all the time was how does anybody know what the top 30 is? How do they choose? Because there was nowhere playing music that you could hear it. If you was kind of five, six, seven years old, something by that time. But then, around about that time, and I think a lot of musical trends depend on some kind of invention of something, you know, like a physical invention. Like, you wouldn't have had rock and roll if you didn't have a tape recorder that you could make tape echo on. You wouldn't really have Jimi Hendrix if you hadn't had a a fuzz box. Things like that. And the transistor radio came out. And all the kids got a tiny little transistor radio for Christmas, and you could flick through the dials and all that, and you'd find things like American Forces Network or Radio Luxembourg. But also you could listen to things that you wanted to listen to, and you didn't have to listen to the, to the family's record player, did you? So it was kind of, before the transistor, there was only one record player, usually, wasn't there? And so yeah, you, yeah. And it was usually governed by the parents. It was governed by the parents, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah apart from maybe what you could blag, you know, for Christmas or something. Yeah. Like that. Um, but yeah, then you started to hear the, all these other kind of things which seemed a bit more happening and hit somehow for a reason that you don't really know why than Helen Shapiro, you know. Right, yeah. And, and you did like the Idol Race or early Who stuff, things like that. When did you start to play? Well, um, 
Well, coupled with that, and then, I don't know exactly when it started, I think we had the best ever TV show in the world, which is Ready, Steady, Go. And there's bands that I was listening to on the radio would appear on that. The Stones, Dave Clark Five, Beatles a bit later on, and then the London bands, you know, like the Kinks and the Who and the Small Faces. And I really dug the Small Faces because they, were, they looked like kids, really. In fact, I never really... Until a very late age when I met Bernie Rhodes, I thought, I loved the band, but it was a stupid name. Right? And Bernard Rhodes, who went on to manage a clash, he explained it to me. He was 10 years older than us, or even a bit older than that. And he explained what the name meant. Right? And a face, which I never knew, was somebody who was like on the scene in the 60s and stuff, doing all the clubs. You never know till you find out. And they were little fellas, the small faces. Yeah. He actually thought it was a great name. So once I understood that, that was kind of cool. But I dug them, and they had a kind of a London kind of cockney, a cockney kind of-ness to their lyrics. You know, with like Lazy Sunday, you know, when he's, he's a bit vaudeville, it was fun. And they were different because of that. But also within the band, there was a guy called Ronnie Lane, and there was just something about him I kind of dug. And that kind of led me to wanting to have a guitar for Christmas, which I got when I was 10. But a still strung guitar that doesn't stay in tune is hard work. So if anybody's thinking of buying their kids a guitar for Christmas, get them the best one you possibly can, otherwise it's a waste of money. <laughs> now, my original guitar, I don't know how it ended up there, is in the vault in the Hard Rock in Piccadilly. You can go and see it. And I went down, I don't know how I ended up there. Somebody told me it was there, I went to check it out. And they got it out for me. And I tried to play it, and no wonder I helped invent punk rock. <laughs> <laughs> it is what we call a plank. <laughs> well, we got a picture up of, uh, of, the, of the lineup of uh, Radio 1 DJs, so I think 1967 when the station started, and you were very keen on Mike Raven, weren't you? He was the guy well, in the yeah, middle maybe of the picture. Well, yeah, maybe a bit... Later, I actually bottom. remember being off school, I the flu or something like that, and it was when Radio 1 started, and I heard him play Flowers in the Rain, which was kind of right, cool. Yes. So I started listening to that, and then maybe a couple of years later, we used to go and visit my nan, who'd retired down in Kent, and we'd go down in the little Morris Minor, and I want to say, whoever it was, Thank you for giving me the AA van diecast model Morris Minor. That was kind of cool. But we used to take the transistor radio with us. And every time you went round the corner, you had to kind of move it because you couldn't get any reception. And it was... Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, this song came blasting out, like real crystal clear. And I'd never heard anything like it, although I'd been hip to kind of... Um, Bluebeat and Scar, because where I lived in Kensal Green, up the Arrow Road, it was like one of the first kind of second-generation West Indian immigrant yep. communities. I mean, my school was like half black and half white. And when we played British Bulldogs, somebody would shout out, blacks against whites, which was always a bad idea, because <laughs> they always beat us, you know. <laughs> but everybody mucked in, you know, and one of the guys, Denzel, his mum and dad split up, sadly, and she took in a lodger. And it was one of the latter members of the Scatterlights and he used to come and play football in the street with us. Oh, really? It was kind of cool. So I heard Bluebeat and King Tubby and all that. I didn't really know what it was. And, and Max Romeo was kind of big a bit later on. But this record came blasting out and it was Israelites by Desmond Decker. Right. I thought, wow. But I stayed tuned to the radio for the rest of the show and it was more of a blues kind of program. And, he, and Mike Raven, he was like an early Charlie Gillett kind of guy. <laughs> and what he'd done, because I started listening to the show the next week and the week after that, he'd play a load of old blues, and it kind of got a bit more modern, and then he'd play something that was a little bit more contemporary, maybe because somebody put in £15 in a brown envelope, you know. And I was listening to it regularly, but the show it led into afterwards was the John Pill... Perfume Garden. Yes. Before it was um, Top, Gear. Top, Top Gear. Gear. I think it was not long before it came to Top Gear. But he played bands like Audience and Tyrannosaurus Rex. Right. What did you think of them? 
what I thought of it was that there was a, I discovered that there was a whole bunch of other music that you didn't hear that was pushed down your throat on daytime radio. And it was interesting for that. And also, because I've been listening to Mike Raven, I realised some of it was a bit kind of blues-based. And he recommended an album that I went up to Holden to buy in a record store, proper record store. So I'm like a 14-year-old kid going in there, and I thought it was kind of good to learn the blues to sort of kind of get reinvested with the guitar. And I walked in, and there's some hippie guy there, probably in loom pants and long hair and all that, like you guys used to look like. And, <laughs> Still do. <laughs> and um, I asked for um, the best of, what was it, best of, I don't know, Lightning Hopkins or something right. like that. And he looks at this, he didn't have it, but he looked, sort of sized me up and down. And he said, well, why do you want this? And I said, it was on this programme. He said, we ain't got that. He said, but you might be interested in this, young sir, which was a double album, which was the history of the blues. And it went right back from... The Paul Oliver compilation. Yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah. And it started right in 1910 or something like that. And it went right through to the 60s, I suppose. You know, and they got... um, uh, What's her name? Evil Girl Blues by... Yeah, you do. Aretha Franklin, you know. Oh, right, okay. You know, stuff like that, and James Brown, and... Right. So So you were interested in the history of where things came from? Well, I was was interested, yes, and I was also interested in finding simple songs that you can play three chords on your guitar. Yeah, yeah. The only thing, they all did twiddly bits, which I still never (laughs) really got my head around, you know. But it all kind of fed into... One another, really. One person that you mentioned in the book, we're looking at a picture now of uh, Ted Carroll, the um, man behind Chiswick Records later on, but he used to run Rock On in the Goldbourne Road, didn't he? And then later on in Camden Town and so forth. Yeah, but that feeds in nicely because I was talking about um, records, 78's coming in a cardboard sleeve with stitching down the side and a hole in the middle. And I went in there and we used to go out to Oldham with my, my mates. You know, when you're 14 and you're just kind of going out, you're, you're trying to find your feet. Don't know why, we used to go up there and sit in the wimpy bar thinking we were the bee's knees, you know, and that was it. <laughs> and that was the 18 bus that went one way, went up towards Wembley and stuff. Maybe got as far as Oldham. And then one day we thought we'd go the other way. And we went down, got off at the top of Labrador Grove and walked down found Goldbourne Road and there was all these sort of hippie types, you know, and it stank of patchouli oil and all that. Like. Went in this little kind of market thing and there was a record stall in there, flicking through it, and I found a record in a cardboard sleeve with a hole in the middle with stitching down the side. I've still got it. And there was this band that I'd never heard of called The Faces. Right. Right. And took it home, put it on. First track was a song called Bad and Ruin and it's like a Booker T kind of a Memphis soul kind of groove all on one note not one note but one chord which isn't very good when you're trying to learn the guitar and you're not interested in doing the twiddly bits you know it's a bit kind of boring also around about that time we was on holiday we used to go to holiday camps and I begged my dad maybe a little bit later on to buy me the Led Zeppelin songbook which he did do only if he also bought me the sheet music to I'm going to leave old Darren Town by Roger Whittaker and I learned that. <laughs> that was the deal. Right? I made you learn so it. I learned that. But yeah. The thing with the Led Zeppelin, but it's all on one bloody chord. You know, a whole lot of love, it's one chord, you know. And so that was a bit of a no-no. So I think he got the better end of the deal. Yes, I think he, he probably, did. Yeah, yeah. But, so anyway, I took the, um, the long player record and put it on and I was hooked straight away. And lo and behold... On the album, it was the Faces' second album, there's like a Big Bill Brunsey track on it, you know. So it, it all started to kind of gel and, and kind of make some kind of historical sense somehow. And then I realised that the Faces were a continuation of the Small Faces. Of the small faces. And then around about that time as well, I missed, I had a Saturday job, and I missed, and I'm still sick about this to this day, 
the Stones playing an Hyde Park, Park the Mick Taylor because I had to trundle on one of those barrows round Kensal Green, Mrs Brown's and Mrs Jones's shopping for the week. Right, and I could, couldn't not do that. But I swung a day off when Humble Pie played there. Oh, was I was there. So I saw them there. And it, the whole thing was great. You know, Head, Hands and Feet with Ch- Chaz and Dave and them or something. Grand like Front Railroad. Grand Front <laughs> Railroad. A lot of people left when they came on it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we've had them all here, you know, uh, Donald Fagan. and what we've been talking about, Skunk Baxter. Skunk and Baxter, and yeah, now we've got uh, Grand Front Railroad. It's all in there. But again, that all fed in with the John Pell show. He was playing all this other stuff, yeah. you know, an early free. And, you know, I felt I was up with the trend because he used to play Deborah by Tyrannosaurus Rex, but they very quickly became T-Rex and one electric, you know. I was their man. (laughs) So, one of your Saturday jobs led you to Malcolm McLaren. Yeah. This is your sliding doors moment. It was a very sliding doors moment. Had you not gone through that door into that shop and got that job? I wouldn't be sitting here today. No, No. I worked in this store called Whiteley's, which was a department store, and I made an almighty cock-up one day for being up all night for the first time ever. And you had to pay for things by getting a cheque or the money and putting in this kind of canister, which went in a compressed oh, air right, system yes. up for the thing. Cash office, yes. What was it called? We went to the cash office, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. And it worked perfectly, if you remember, to fill out the sales docket. <laughs> but because I was a bit woozy from being up all night, I forgot. Right, and within about 20 minutes, the whole store was in abject chaos because of me, right? And I, I managed to get this through This caused punk rock, let's not forget. There you go. <laughs> no, no. It, it, it wasn't punk rock, punk rock it was bl- blithering idiocy. Right. right? Yeah. But I thought, if I go back next week, I'm going to be for the high jump. And also, you know, I was sort of clothes-wise, I suppose I was a tiny bit skinheady with stay pressed in your button down shirt and all that and then somebody told me oh there was a place that sold these brothel creek with shoes and you know when you're at school things become oh you must go and check that out and I got a bus down to King's Road and I've never been down there before in my life got the number 11 bus which terminates at World's End got out and there was a shop with half an American car sticking out the window and I thought brothel creek was rock and roll shoes American car this must be it. And I went in there, and it looked like a Rolling Stones kind of faces kind of shop, which was quite interesting. And I said, well, do you sell brothel creep with shoes? And they said, no, we don't. He said, but our mate does, and it's the next clothes shop along. So I wandered down a bit further, walked in there, and this is in the middle of the week. I think it was like half-term holiday at school or something. Walked in there, and it was like going in my grand's sitting room. They had all 50-style wallpaper, didn't have a jukebox then. They had um, a radiogram. Nobody else in there apart from me and this sort of slightly scraggly-haired, long-haired bloke. And I've, I said, oh, you got brothel treatments? He said, over there. And I looked at the price of them. It was like seven pounds, which was a fortune. I'm like, oh, hmm. And I was taking too long to be in there without buying something or whatever. And the guy said, well, can I help you? And I went, mm, uh, you don't need anybody to work here, do you? And the guy said, well, as it happens, I'm leaving at the weekend. Why don't you call this guy up? And he wrote down a number, Malcolm. So I called him up. And that was it, because he needed some staff. So I started the following Saturday, and that was it. Right. Which is where you met Paul Cook and Steve Jones, wasn't it? Yeah, not initially, a bit, yeah. a bit later on. But that in itself was kind of interesting, because it was a teddy boy shop. In the week, there was nothing there. But on a Friday night, he'd have a delivery of brothel creepers. Saturday morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, there'd be a queue right down to the, the Chelsea Bun, which was a little cafe where all the bus drivers used to go. And there'd be a queue of teddy boys waiting to get some... It was just mad. It was, to- it was totally different. And going in there, there was all these kind of weirdo... Not weirdos, but people I'd never really come across before. And back then, um, Pauline, who spoke very well, I thought, mentioned Clockwork Orange, and there was pictures of um, the Rocky Horror Show up there. Well, it transpired that Malcolm and Vivian had done some clothes for the Rocky Horror Show, which back then 
It wasn't a film at all. It was a stage yeah. play at the, yeah. at the King's Road Theatre. And a bit later on, I met, got involved with Malcolm and Vivian and Bernard Rhodes was mates with them. We started going out to see things and there was a band that were heavily influenced by Clockwork Orange. And on the Sunday night when the show wasn't on, the heavy metal kids played. Yes. So we all went to see that. And Gary Alton came through, who ended up as Wayne, or Dwayne in... Um, How Fida's name, Pat. Fida's name, Pat. You know, he came swanning in right through the audience. It was kind of... There was all this stuff going on. They were all slightly kind of precursors to... Yeah, and, and none of it quite out. fitted together, but, but it did later on. It but, did later on, you know, and, and the whole sort of Bowie thing had... Well, not been and gone, because he never really went away, but that initial surge of, of um, you know, the spiders from Mars who I actually saw at Hell's Court, because um, I started going out then and I seen the faces. Motley Hoople were kind of cool bands that were a bit more left-wing, not left-wing, but left-field slightly mm-hmm. than your, your teeny bop kind of stuff. That, those people started coming in the shop. I saw, Mick Ronson came in one day and I sold him a pair of pink casual loafers. Which you then saw him wearing on some TV show, didn't no, you? No, he wears them in the, the Bob Dylan movie Ronaldo and Clara. That was it. And when I went to see it at Camden Park, Wyoming, and I told everybody. <laughs> I sold him. I sold him those <laughs> shoes. <laughs> but it, it, initially, just through, I mean, that was later on, but I started to feel kind of connected with this kind of demimond. And Malcolm's shop was the total antithesis of what purportedly was going on in London. You know, yeah, like, yeah. You know, Granny takes a trip, round the corner was Alcashira, where, like, he shall not be named, but, like, Gary Glitter, you know, would buy their kind of clothes and stuff. And then there's all these kind of Chelsea mob and sort of semi-junky people, and like, which wasn't that interesting, but there was always something about them, you know, and then there was a connection to... You know, Bowie did that fantastic album with Mick Ronson and Lou Reed, Transformer. You know, that was a really seminal world yeah. punk rock record. And then Malcolm got involved with the New York Dolls, and I didn't meet them there, but there was a like, connection then. And then Stephen Paul and Wally started coming in, who right. were kind of interested in all that too, but they were right. And they had a little group and were playing what kind of music then? Wally and Steve? Well, or... I didn't, didn't really know what they was doing then. It's just that they sort of had a band. And I always thought Steve was a bit of a tea leaf, you know, so I, I would be more interested in making sure he didn't nick the Dayglow socks or something yeah, yeah, worse. Sure. But then they was always trying to chat out Malcolm, who would kind of humour him. And then one day I overheard Malcolm saying, oh, how's the band going, lads? <laughs> you know. And Paul said, he said, well, do you know what, Malcolm, we're trying to take it seriously, but our bass player never turns up, and we can't get on. And our bass player was Del, who was Paul's sis- sister's fiancé at the time. Right? And I said, well, I've got a bass. I didn't say I could play it. I said, I've got a bass. And they went, really? What bands do you like? And I said, the faces. And they said, really? It's our favourite band too. So that... You know, a couple of days later, I'm around Wally's house in East Acton playing bass. Right, right. And, I've, and the only song I knew all the way through without stopping, and it is quite a flash one, is um, Free Button Hammer Down. By the right, way. oh, very good. So I played it and I was in, and then I said, and I had this really cheap bass I got at school, which I actually think was a six-string guitar with two of the strings taken off and four <laughs> fat ones, but... But it was purple, it, it, it did have a go-faster stripe on it, so I thought it was great. And in a real Crocodile Dundee moment, they said, well, you're in, but you're not playing that, that's not a bass. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I went, what then? And from under Wally's bed, they pulled out a guitar case with a Fender Precision in it. I said, where'd you get that? And they said, don't ask. And I didn't. <laughs> They were those kind of guys. Right. Well, they famously nicked the gear, didn't they, from the I'm David not, Bowie concert? I'm not saying, but they did. <laughs> just... but, our, but our demos did sound good. Right. <laughs> what were your first impressions of John, John, John Lydon? Well, yeah, look, I mean, we was knocking around for a good six months together, rehearsing. They, turns out they had a band called Strand. Steve was the guitarist. They weren't called Strand when I joined them, there was just no name. Wally was a guitarist, Steve was trying to be the singer, he sort of saw himself as a cross between Roy Orbison and Steve Ellis. In fact, we even had a couple of goes at um, Day Without Love and stuff like All right. that. But what we did find out is that if you have a, have a go at playing a song, and I think Pauline would probably agree with this, Sometimes it's a bit too hard. <laughs> and it sounds nothing like it. But what you do have is the beginning of something of your own. So to do cover versions badly is not necessarily a bad thing. No, no. You know, it's a starting point for something else. Yeah, yeah. So when... Can you remember the first time you met John Johnny Ron? Well, what happened was that Wally wasn't working out. He got asked to leave. Steve was getting more proficient on the guitar um, and he was on the lookout for a singer and back then nearly everybody but everybody you know including the milkman and your bank manager if you had one had long hair and flares and a great coat and sideburns down here they all look, everybody looked like Dickie Davis you know <laughs> <laughs> so if we saw somebody on the street with short hair and drain trousers they was a candidate to ask and of course we was in the, the right bit of town as it transpired the world's end and there were a few people came down and somebody saw a guy called John in fact Bernard Road said look out for this guy called John and John came in the shop I wasn't there at the t- when he first came in and they got this guy called John and it was arranged to meet him in the pub the Roebuck where we used to hang out which was like an episode of Budgie every night. Right. You know, you'd be talking to some older bloke in there. What do you do? Oh well, sonny, I'm a diamond dealer, and I, you know, <laughs> it, it's all right, kind of that. You know, yeah. you Gary Elton to be there in there, and it's always quite funny. Actually, you used to see Carlos, the chef from um, Crossroads, was in there leaning at the oh, bar because yes. his boyfriend was the barman. Yes. You know, they had this nice little perm. You know, <laughs> it, it, it was it, it was a real sort of world in itself. Anyway, we arranged to meet John in there and he came in the shop after the shop shut one Saturday night and he tried out for us in front of the jukebox, which was a very awkward scenario. And he sang might... what? Can you remember what he sang? What did he sing? A um, couple of things, but one of the main ones is 18 by Alice Cooper. It turned out he was an Alice Cooper fan and he was just kind of goofing around in front of him. And you were all just standing there looking he was at him? standing there watching and John was there with his mate, who's called John, John Gray... And that was it. And then maybe a week or so later, we saw Bernard Rose. We said, oh, we've got a singer. And then he saw John. And he said, no, you get this guy called John. He said, he's called John. He said, no, not that John, the other John. <laughs> the other John he'd seen... Could have gone wrong. <laughs> well, the other John he'd seen, he was quite taken with him because he saw a guy having a run-in with an old lady who then told her where to go by flashing his woolly at her. <laughs> You know, in broad daylight on a Saturday afternoon, and 
Bernie's reason was, you must have something going for you if you can do that in broad daylight. Anyway, that turned out to be said. And they were all mates together, and they'd all gone... And they're all called John. You had a paragraph in the book about a load of people called John. Jar Wobble was called John, wasn't he? Everybody was called John. John Gray, who was called Gray. Sid was John Beverly, and John being the leader of the pack was John, you know. But then Malcolm dubbed him that day Johnny Rotten. Right. Because Steve was going on about his green teeth. And John couldn't really argue about that. No, uh, uh. Did you did you think this is this is going somewhere, or did you think this will just last well, for a no, couple it, of months? It was kind of exciting. I got on with John then. We started taking it seriously. We we rehearsed in a few different places, and then one day I was looking through the melody maker, and he used to have all these little adverts in the back of the thing. You know, buy your loon pants and. and yeah. something called Carnaby Cavern or something like that. <laughs> awesome. And there's all these places that seem really kind of exotic when you're 15 yeah. and it turns out they're not. Right. Um, Kingly Court. There's somewhere in Kingly Court, yeah, right? Yeah. What you've got there, I don't remember. Um, but I saw an advert and it said, lease for sale. And it was this place in Denmark Street and Malcolm said to me, and this was in the shop, he said, call them up and offer him a £1,000 without seeing it. I said, you're mad. He said, no, do it. So I called this bloke up, and I said, I think my mate's a bit daft, but we're interested in your place, and he's offered you a £1,000 without seeing it. And he went, I think we can talk business. So maybe later on that week, we went down to Denmark Street. Lovely old chap, Bill Collins, who'd been the manager of the Mojos, and he'd been a roadie for the Beatles, and he'd been managing Badfinger, now, two of them were no, sadly no longer with us, and it was their rehearsal place. And he liked the cut of our jib. I don't think he ever got his £1,000, but he kind, he kind of helped <laughs> take us under his wing, as well as Malcolm. So we had this fantastic place in the middle of Timpan Alley. Steve, me and Steve moved in. You, you lived there? I lived there, contrary to Danny Boyle's movie. Me and Steve lived there for about six months, and we had a re- rehearsal place down there. Now, having your own rehearsal place if you're in a band is fantastic. If you haven't got one, you have to kind of book somewhere. It costs money. You have to get there. You've got to ramp all your gear there and all that set up. Da, 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 only to find out nobody's got an idea that's worthwhile per- pursuing. And then you have to wait another week to do the same thing again. When you've got your own place, you can go there every day and find out nobody's got an idea about the show. <laughs> but at least, well, it's, it's true though, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's true. So, so it accelerates whatever. It accelerates, we had nothing, well, not that we didn't have nothing better to do, but we were kind of dedicated to our noisy craft. We had, Steve had 100 watt amp, I had 100 watt amp, Paul had his drum kit, you know, and we'd, trying to get our money's worth out of every wattage of this amp. And the room was maybe about twice the size of this podium with a low ceiling. And in the corner was a PA system with a 50-watt amp. Now, there's some kind of physics mathematics that the PA has got to be the sum plus a bit more of all the other instruments in the back line. And it was about a quarter of it. And I think that kind of... um, contributed to John's vocal style. Right. And, John, and John's, you write about him writing the lyrics, it's very interesting, he carried the lyrics around in a bag, didn't he? But he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, he adapt the lyrics to the music. The music had to be written to the lyrics. Yeah, but I, I don't think he did that. I think he was a bit shy. Yeah. He hadn't been in a band before. We didn't really know how it was supposed to work. You know, we're knocking ideas around. A couple of things... I mean, this is my claim to fame, you know. I, one of the really early songs was Pretty Vacant, which I kind of contributed pretty much finished. But John was supposed to be the lyricist, and he had the kind of the gift of the gap somehow. And Steve, particularly, I always thought was the spirit of the Sex Pistols. You know, even later on, when they after I left and they did a pretty vacant video, God Save the Queen, and he's got the anarchy handkerchief knotted in his head. I mean, what self-respecting lead guitarist would do that? But Steve did and carries it off. You know, that was the spirit of the band. But John could put that kind of 
emotion into words somehow. Right. right. And also another thing that was important was that because of our kind of connections, there was a guy who used to come and hang out in a shop with us, and he'd help Steve with guitar lessons, but Steve's never really credited him with. It's Nick Kent. He was like the style writer of the NME at the time, sort of the Lester Bangs of England, and he was always going backwards and forwards to um, Granny Takes a Trip because there was other under-the-counter stuff going on. And he gave us a cassette. He kind of took us a bit of interest in this and this cassette was like nothing that we'd ever heard and there was a song on it that we thought we'd do I'll tell you in a minute but his mate was John Cowell who produced this band and the record didn't come out for another year and the song that took our fancy was Roadrunner and we did it before the record was even released because we was in the right place at the right time we were the right guys it was only later on that we found out it was about a car you know, I don't think we would have ever done it, done it had we known. And it was only a few years back I was recording in Rhinebeck up upstate New York and they somebody was up with the drums and I borrowed El Slick's car and I drove into town and I thought I'd come back a different way because they probably haven't fixed the kit yet. And I actually drove past the stop and shop. And there's a little go. chain of yes. things. And it, all, it took like kind of 40 years. Yes, that whole story that's what together, happens, isn't, isn't it? Yeah. We've got to ask you about the major pivotal moment, which is the, the appearing on the Bill Grundy show, which is the... Oh, right. The, oh, that problem, which is oh, uh, Malcolm's idea that you should do this and promote the tour. And then well, Malcolm no, looks, no, it, it tell it us what happened. And then, then he's mortified, isn't he? Yeah, he but it, it, again, it was a sliding doors moment. It wasn't Malcolm's idea. We'd just signed to EMI, and our stable mates were Queen. And Queen oh, they've was supposed out. to do it because Freddie had a bad toothache. Well, I can't possibly go on, you know, the show must go on, but it didn't. And I think the press guy at that time was Eric Hall. So he suggested Malcolm to do it. And this Malcolm, is Monster Eric Hall. This is. Yeah, Monster Eric Hall. I've, I've read a funny thing to, uh, today about him and Terry Venables. Yes, I saw Did you read that? Yeah, I did, yes. Sorry, list. we'll tell it's you about It's a bit of a long story. <laughs> him and Mad Frankie Frank. Yes, yeah, so, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, move on from that. But, um, yeah, so you, the Queen couldn't do it, so Sex Pistols... Yeah, so we, did it. we nearly didn't do it because we were rehearsing for the Anarchy Tour. It was the first day, lots of things happened. We, in Olsen, next to where I bought the story of the Blues album, actually, but it was a cinema, and it had turned into band rehearsals and was going to be a gig. And... Um, we were kind of busy rehearsing, so we wasn't going to do it. And it was only on the third phone call when Malcolm's sort of lad, Neil Stevenson, said, well, Malcolm says if you don't do it, you won't get your wages this week. And we, Pauline, he was on £30 a week, he was on £25 a week. Yeah. So we thought we'd get in the car, and they sent a limo, pulled up outside um, Euston Tower, which was where... What was it? Not London Week. Well, was it LWT? Thames, Thames, Thames TV Thames, was. Yeah. Went in. Went in the green room. Steve was in like Flynn and out again. And it was winter because he had an overcoat on and stuff. Went out somewhere else. Me, John and Paul and Malcolm sort of found those little 33 centilitre cans of Heineken warm. Had one of them each. Next thing, we're on in front of the cameras. Bill Grundy comes down, he's got a cob on, tries to take it out with the wrong blokes, picks on us. What had actually happened was Steve had been in the green room first and found a bottle of Blue Nun and gone in another room and drunk most of it to himself, which then kicked in... That's so 70s, Blue Nun. Yeah. Yeah. And that that was it. And then the following day... I blame the Germans. (laughs) (laughs) But the following day you were... You were the biggest story in... It was the biggest story in, in the country. The, in the planet. But by then, we had been gigging. We'd been on the front page of the Melody Maker where we were supposedly fright, fighting with the audience, but we was actually trying to break up a, a fight because nobody watches the band if there's a fight. You know, it was all that kind of... Bit. But we, we, we were making headway. You know, we'd done the, the 100 Club. It was building up. We'd gone to Paris and did this and that and the other... But yes, we did the Bill Grundy show and it just all became a different thing overnight. And, and with the immediate result that your tour... The tour 
we embarked upon, I think it should have been called the Flying Dutchman Tour, really. We did like three or four shows out of 23. But we had to turn up to all of them to show willing. Oh, really? Well, I think at the very bottom line, if we didn't turn up, they could have said we didn't turn up. Well, we wouldn't got like half the money guarantee for that thing. But also, we wanted to show because we wanted to play and we wasn't going to kowtow to the censorship. So it was local councils very often, wasn't it, interviewing? Yeah, but also it was bloody daft. You know, like one place the mayor would say, well, if they play in the afternoon in front of me and I approve it, they can play in the evening. Well, I thought it was bloody stupid because we could actually be nice as pie. <laughs> he approved it, and we could go and swear our heads off. It's know? a lovely idea of the Sex Pistols just playing to a solitary mayor. That's yeah. just <laughs> wonderful. Well, some of the early gigs we did, we played up Red Car, or not Red Car, but somewhere up that way. We played a conservative club. Yes. And the bloke kept coming in asking us to turn down. There was only about six men and his dog there. And he came in in the end and he went, It's no good, lads. Excuse my northern accent. It's no good, lads. He said, We'll pay you, but you have to go because we can't have bingo being called. <laughs> you know, so we did all those kind of things. But it was great. You know, these days, sort of bands make a record I mean I've got kids who are in bands you know and they've written their first song and they want to put it on Facebook or MySpace back then or whatever but we didn't do it any of that we did all these shitty little gigs and you learn your stagecraft and you iron out all the wrong bits I mean there was a song I used to sing I can't even remember how it goes but it was stupid because I'd sing a song and then John, Johnny Rotten was doing backing vocals he felt like a planet I felt like a planet singing it and that just went. I think it was called Where Are You Gonna Go? Well, it went in the bin. Right. But it was only by doing gigs that you find that out. The but, book gives, it has the chance for you to, to set the record straight about your departure from the group because, right. you know, the, the, as, as journalists at the time, we, we kind of remember it as being, you know, Malcolm appeared to have orchestrated this and was the idea that Glenn well, probably, liked the terrible pro- crime of liking the people. He probably kind of did in a way. But, you know, my... Well, two things... A, you were talking about my brief tenure in the pistols. I'm, I'm actually like one of those petrol stations, the first and last before the M1, right? So I was the first one, and then I've done many more gigs around the world since then with them, actually. The vast majority of the songs were written then. The only thing that's ended up on Nevermind the Bollocks, they all sound exactly the same as Spunk, except the bass plan's not quite so good, and the, the sound's superior so I, I kind of felt I'd done my bit after the Bill Grundy show it all became a whole different thing Malcolm was trying to pitch us as like some kind of new Bay City Rollers and he was a Sven and we weren't allowed to play anywhere and I'd go and see a band and some guy would tap me on the shoulder and say hey, Glenn hey, tell Malcolm that um, I'll put you on who are you then? Well, I'm a promoter. I'll put you on at the marquee. So I go and tell Malcolm, you go, I know, now you're banned. Right. And it's kind of, it happened all the time. I was 19. I just felt it. And I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to play. I just found it all a little bit dishonest, you know. And then when we did the, the Anarchy tour, it was, it became really sort of factional within the band, you know. So, so it wasn't happy? It was a really frosty atmosphere. Or, um, and then we had a big meeting me, Steve and Paul I, I knew they tried out Sid over the Christmas period which they thought I didn't know but I did know which I thought was kind of shitty and I thought well that's not going to go anywhere because he's a likeable nitwit right, with a good haircut and um, then we had this meeting it was me, Steve, Paul and Malcolm and Paul said to me you know, look, we're not that keen on John, but we know you're really not that keen on John. Can't you just pretend you like him? Right, and I thought to myself, if you don't realise where most of these songs have... I haven't written the whole thing, but, you know, they've been instigated and stuff. Fuck you. I said, no, either back me up or that. So I could have said, yeah, I can do. And I said, no, no, that's it, if that's what you think. And that was it. So we shook hands, and that was it. Next thing, Malcolm sent a telegram to the enemy saying I've been sacked for liking the Beatles yeah. and also he says and then, and then a couple of weeks after that he called me up he called up and come with, with Sid it weren't working out I met him in the blue post behind the um, 
behind the 100 Club, you know, back straight around. He said, it's not working out, come back. You know, I want you to kick down the doors and all that. But, and be the bass player. But another thing that had been happening as well, which is in the book, was that I became friendly with a guy at EMI called Mike Thorne, who went on to become quite a big record producer. And when all this is going on, we actually did some demos with Mike, with the Pistols, just after the beginning of 77. And he said to me, look, do you want to come out for a curry? And I said, yeah, who's buying? He said, well, EMI. So I met up with him, and I said, what's this all about? And he said, well, me and the people at EMI kind of know there's a problem with you and the band. We help you sort it out. But also, if you don't, me and the people at EMI see you as a main tunesmith in the band, and if it doesn't work out, we'll be more than interested in anything else you come up with. And I thought, well, that's fucking interesting. So I've got that going in the back of my mind. And I didn't rush to sign to AMI, but I thought, if they felt that, other record companies would do. So I don't know if that was kind of right. turncoat-ish to the Pistols ethos, but I was getting the stick, so I walked. You know, all those things kind of came together. Yeah. And when you're 19, just turned 20... You don't necessarily see the wood for the... Tr- see, your next thing was the rich kids. I'd already started getting that together. Then. Why do you think that didn't work? Why? Wrong thing at the wrong time, really. A few years later, well, we had our moment in the sun. We would have bands. Many years later, I did a thing with a version of The Faces, and then... Steve knew, sadly, got very ill with cancer, and we had some guests. We played a show to kind of try and raise some money for him, and we invited Gary Kemp down. And at the rehearsal, Gary Kemp's jumping up and down, like, going steady on Gary, you know, with the gigs tomorrow, you know. And he said, no, no, I'm really excited. We used to come and see you when you did do gigs. And he said, me doing this must have been what it was like for you playing in the faces, which he didn't have to say that, at all, but we were a big deal. And I, I think I, we were like a bridgehead. You. you know, we play in Birmingham, Duran Duran to be in the front row before they got it together. I saw you thought you were terrific, but I mean, I, I, I think a lot of it was the press. The press were incredibly excited about you, and then overnight, all of them decided... Well, they set you up, and they knocked you down. You know, and I, I remember one review, which really hurt, was, you know, we're trying to get together. We played at the Lafayette on, in midweek in... January the 17th or something like One page was anarchy in the UK with the Pistols review and this was apathy in Wolverhampton, you know. Yeah. And it was kind of shitty and even the same people a month before, but, you know, you put a picture up there, the faces... Well, that's a classic case of somebody just writing a headline thinking, let's that's, just go with that, actually. Yeah, Whether blame it's the true subs. or not, you know. Always blame the subs. Yeah, blame the subs. But, you know, and then, then Midge and Rusty, and another thing... When we signed to AMI, and I didn't rush to sign to AMI because everybody was chasing us. Branson, Polydor, you know, Chris Parry there, somebody else, somebody else. But AMI just seemed to fit and I was getting so much shit from the other people. We all thought, fuck you, I will sign to AMI. Right? But when we signed, I realised that EMI had a fantastic back catalogue. So, although I didn't have, I only had a couple, everybody in the band when we signed got a complete set of Beatles. They got a complete set of Tamla Motown. They got a complete set of Credence Clearwater Revival. They got a complete set of... This is in the contract. And a complete set of craft work, right? Umidge and Rusty had never fucking heard of, right? And they loved it, right? Oh, right, so that's so, visage. Yeah, so that kind of got visage going, which they did as side projects. And then they started wanting to wear silly hats and I wanted none of that. And then the phone rang and Iggy Pop called me up. So that, that right, that. right. So that kind of all... You know, so you a slide indoors thing. If I hadn't given him a copy of yeah. um, Radioactivity... No, sure. Yeah. But many years later... Well, many years later, I was in 95. I just made an album for Creation, which I was waiting for to come out. And a friend of mine called Calvin Hayes, who was Mickey Mo's son, was living in Los Angeles. He said, I found this fantastic singer. Why don't you come over? So I went over with Steve New. And we checked out this fantastic singer and Calvin played drums and he wasn't that fantastic at all. Nice bloke, interesting, wasn't a singer. And so I was just kind of mucking around in LA 
And Calvin said, well, what are you going to do? And I'm staying at his house. He said, you know what? I haven't spoken to Steve Jones in about 17 years. And he went, oh. He said, you should call him up. So I got his number. Next day, he said, look, I've got Steve's number. Call him. I went, uh, this has been a bit shitty. And the next day, he said, you called him yet? No, he said, call him. This went on for about a week. And I called up Steve. And he went, hello. He said, I heard he was in town. Come over. So I drove up to his place in the Hollywood Hills somewhere. And as soon as I got there, he said, let's go and see John. And I was like, oh. So we drove down to, to Venice there and went out for lunch, which I ended up buying. John afterwards said, you know, when that thing and the bill comes and he just sits there. Yeah. I can't stand that. I ended up just getting it, right? And then John went, oh, I was going to get that. Uh, right, yeah. But we're going all right. And then we called up Paul. But with the time difference, he was out and he called back. But it's set in train. And that was 17 years without communication. Pretty much. I've seen Paul a little bit. But Steve and John lived in America. Right, right. And, um, and, yeah. and that led to a reformation and a, and that a tour. That led to the Filthy Liquor Tour, yeah. Right. Yeah, which was a and big... how, how were relations on that tour? They started off pretty good. And, and you know, Pauline was saying, you know, when you sit in... You know, one of the gigs I remember doing early days with the Pistols, Denmark Street, and we had these kind of roadies, Dave Goodman and Kim Thraves, and they had a, a transit Luton, you know, when a bit over the cab, with no windows in the back. So Steve always managed to get in the front, of course. And there's me, John, and Paul, with a shuttered door at the back, you know, going for miles and miles, bumping around on the equipment, no seats, blah, 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 blah. hammering on, yeah, we want to pee, fucking stop. Thing goes, shh, we're on the Yorkshire Moors, it's pissing down the rain, you know. It's not very comfortable. And that's when arguments kind of start. When we did that tour, we flew everywhere first class, not this... necessarily on the same day, on the same flight. <laughs> it makes such and a difference. And you can afford to come to an accommodation with each other. And of course, one of the points you make in the book is when, when bands, when you reformed, and I'm sure this applies to many bands, they're playing far bigger venues than they played in, in the early days. Yeah. You know, the sort of legacy of the Pistols was a real big deal thing. People were going on and on about it. You know, Aces had come out and they're going on and on about they're trying to do a thing between the Beatles and... And um, the Sex Pistols, you know, it was a time and a place for things. But I like to do it because I it was building a, a few fences, kind of. But we got to play our music, and for me, it was always about the music. And there was some good songs there. Yeah. And to play that in front of a big crowd with a seventeen thousand watt. That must be fantastic. System. Yeah. It's and doing the, you're doing what gig. you did before but with all the problems supposedly taken away. Really. Yeah, when I was in the band first time around, I think probably the biggest gig we did was the Leeds Poly, which yeah. was maybe three hundred and fifty yeah. people. Now, not many people are fortunate to do that, but I thought we kind of got it together. You know, when we did the Filthy Luca tour, we did two gigs in Europe. We played in Finland, which is really funny actually, it was like Midsummer's Day and it was like on a farm and you had to go down this track at like dirt road and in the tour bus and on one side was a wire fence with an ostrich farm, right? <laughs> and in front of us, about a kilometre, there was a bloke with a wheelbarrow full of his beer who would not get out of fucking way. Right, and we had to crawl all the way behind this guy, and we played to kind of like Anakin UK apathy in Helsinki kind of thing. It was pretty bad. And I love we, this. And then we did another gig in Germany, and it was pissing down with rain, and that was like, oh, and Steve was going, oh, I don't know if we should be doing this or not. And then we had to do Friendsbury Park, right? And not only did we have to do Friendsbury Park, we had to make a live album go out live on the radio, which I didn't think was a good business sense because everybody taped it, burst through a screen the night before I stupidly watched Spinal Tap, right, <laughs> where the bass player stuck in a pod, and then there's a screen which we hadn't done before, we had to burst through, and it was like, Ugh. and it all came together, and it was fantastic, and it was like, yeah, this is, it was good, you know, we hadn't played 
in London all that time. So it was exciting. So you've achieved many of your ambitions. Yeah, looking at a picture of you being a member of the Faces. The well, full circle there, yeah. Yeah, not a very good picture, but there you go. <laughs> um, um, yeah, and it was a version of the faces. I got the gig because Ian McGlaggan, bless him, who I think was one of the best keyboard players ever, he was right up there with Garth Hudson and Booker T. Um, he was my mate. He did a show with the Richards. Right, um, yeah. And so he got me the gig. And he, and, you know, I pushed him. And they were trying to get Rod to do it, but for whatever reason, I wasn't really party to it. He didn't. They got Mick Hucknall... He didn't have to do it, did it with a good heart and it was bloody good. Didn't do that many shows. But when they decided I was going to be the bloke to do it, Matt called me up. He said, right, Glenn, you're in. You sure you can do this? And I said, Matt, I learnt a play doing these songs. I know I'm backwards. And he went, oh, great. I said, it's just forwards I struggle with. He, <laughs> he laughed and it got me to gig. <laughs> So the last been, project was, was the Blondie project, which I mean, a lot of, a lot of us would have seen you on Glast- the, the Glastonbury Sorry, show this summer. Uh, when you joined Blondie and, uh, and uh, toured this summer and played Glastonbury, that must have been extraordinary. Yeah, and it was all a bit kind of last minute. I've been mates with Clem Burke for a long time. And the funny thing was, at the, at the end of the Filthy Luca tour, I'd sort of stayed out of the country a little bit, luckily... Um, before Tony Blair came in and changed the staying out of the country tax laws, but it's a bit like being a boxer, a prize fight, and you're never going to have another one kind of thing, right? And I was out of the country, and mobile phones were in their infancy, and I kept getting all these missed calls from Clem Burke, right? What was going on there? Wasn't in a mad rush to speak to him, didn't try that hard. When I was back in London, about a month later, Clem called me up when I was at home, and he said, oh, come and meet me. And I thought, what's going on here? Is he going to... And I met him at the Royal Garden Hotel, where, when England won the World Cup, my dad took me down there to see the England team come out. Nobby Styles, that's Ralph Ramsey. But a bloke who got the biggest cheer of the night was this little old bloke in a raincoat who whirled up his dog, and it was Pickles the Pickles. dog. Pickles! fantastic. I saw Pickles the dog. Anyway, Blondie was staying there and I went in and I said, oh, Clem, how are you doing? What's this all about? He said, I want you to meet our new bass player. <laughs> I thought, oh, shit. So I think he was trying to be a bit risey. Right. And then, and then I, I knew him all a little bit. And then they were going up to check out Paul Smith in um, Westbourne Grove. And I said, well, I'm going that way. So I had like five of them, Debbie and Chris Stein and Clem, in the back of my Citroen at the time, and I went the wrong way round in case somebody recognised me, having Debbie Harry in my car, <laughs> and dropped them off at Paul Smith, and that was kind of cool. I've been mates with Clem, we've done loads of different projects over the years, getting on for two years ago now, he called me up, and it was, they were supposed to be, in a, be doing a tour that they couldn't do because of lockdown, you know, and lots of tours that came up had been put back, and they started rehearsing with the band, it weren't working out, and he said, can you come over, play bass for us? And I said, when, in a couple of months? And he said, no, next Tuesday. And I was like, woo. So I went over, met him, learnt a few songs, That's and then came back, set. and then the first gig I did was um, the SEC in, in Glasgow in front of like 20,000 people, a few little kind of crib notes and stuff. And then, it's kind of funny this, then... The night after the night after, we played in Swansea, another big show there. But in between, it just worked out all right. In lockdown, I'd met this guy, Kevin Brennan, who's the Labour MP for Cardiff West. No, not Swansea, in Cardiff. And he's been very good. He's been speaking about the effects of Brexit on musicians touring and streaming and had Lord Frost in front of a select committee. And and he's quite a good folk musician. And I met him. And in lockdown, I put some bass at home on his album. And then it was a big album launch. And it was in the night in between the two gigs. And I'd already promised him I'd do it. And so I went and played in this little church in Canton and did this show with him. And then they went and did the thing. It's cool. I like doing things like that. It's like the rough of the smooth. Yeah. So you're available for engagements. Is that fair to say, Glenn? With a, a little bit of thinking behind it. Right. <laughs> but I, I like to, you know, to me... I'm fortunate, I know I'm going to get a phone call every once in a while. But, you know, I've got a career doing my own stuff. I do quite reasonable sized shows, not Amazon Odeon, but we've got a tour coming up at the end of the year, doing my acoustic show. I'm going to be supporting 
uh, Stiff Little Fingers, theatre tour around in March, I think it is, with my band. I enjoyed doing that. But music is like a sine wave, you know, it's mm. up and down, and if you roll with it... I mean, Clem, he's always playing with different things. He keeps your match fit. Yeah, yeah. Sitting at home, waiting for the phone to ring for the right call, but you get sitting at home waiting for the right person to call you. It does happen once in a blue moon, but you can't bank on it. You've got to get out there and do stuff. That's sage advice. Ladies and gentlemen, Glenn Matlock. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having us. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.